Today is 24 June 2020, Feast of the Nativity of St. John the Baptist. Welcome to episode number 115 of the Barnhard Podcast. This is Mark Doherty sitting in for Super Nerd. And with us again today is special guest, Dr. Edmund Matza, professor, scholar, author, and central figure in the question of who is true Pope of the one true church. This is part three of the Mazacast as we continue <laughs> to follow developments in this area. Dr. Matza, welcome back. Wow, a trilogy, just like the Godfather. This is great. <laughs> All the listeners should at this point be sending in every bad pun they can think of with regards to the name Matza. I've been calling him Matza Ball Soup for quite some time. <laughs> if anybody can think of it any more, then uh, please send those in. So glad to have you. And my goodness, my goodness, Dr. Matza, it's, uh, it's conceivably possible that you are influencing global events. Uh, well done. <laughs> I hope I'm not to blame for the fact that Benedict almost escaped, but... <laughs> <laughs> We're going to go there. We're going to talk about that, but... <laughs> We're going to go there right after we resolve the cliffhanger from episode two of the Matzah Of Dallas? Yes, it was it was Sue Ellen's sister. There, there I, I spilled the beans. It was Sue Ellen's sister. Spoiler. 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 <laughs> so the uh, where we left off was talking about the uh, critical phrase within uh, Benedict's Declaratio, uh, where he seems to have wanted to resign something or other. Uh, but the, the, the phrase that uh, a lot of people get hung up on is where he talks about the election of the new Supreme Pontiff. So right after the, the words where he's resigning uh, the, the ministry of the Bishop of Rome, he says that a conclave will need to be convoked to elect the new Supreme Pontiff. And everyone will point to that and say, well, well, see, whatever whatever he might have messed up in the Latin, or maybe he said what he didn't mean to say or said it or he didn't say it, he clearly says that the new Supreme Pontiff needs to be elected, and that has to be the Pope. Is that right, Dr. Matza? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, <laughs> you know, after my appearance on Dr. Marshall's show, uh, Father Z uh, made a blog post back on June 4th uh, where he talked about that he had listened to our podcast with you guys, the first two podcasts, and he had watched the first uh, interview with, with Marshall. And at the end of his blog post, you know, people leave their comments, right? And somebody left, a couple of people left a comment about that very issue. Uh, it says that he's, you know, the uh, those whose competence it is will have to elect the new Supreme Pontiff, you know, end of story. And Father Z in the red says, uh, no, it's not simple. Uh, whatever it is, it's not simple. And then somebody else wrote in to Father Z and said, what exactly did B-16 mean by new Supreme Pontiff? Could it mean anything other than the obvious? Would B-16 use word stealth even for a good cause? And again, Father Z replies, it's more complicated yet. The very term Pope is in fact hard to apply to the successors of Peter before a certain period. We use it as a rapid label for Peter and his successors, but in fact, it could be anachronistic. So um, because this came up a as a cliffhanger at the end of our last show, and because uh, it came up with Father Z's comments, 
I can kind of briefly explain where we're going with this in terms of Supreme Pontiff. Um, the fact of the matter is there's three quick things I could bring up. Number one, Supreme Pontiff is a late comer in terms of uh, papal uh, nomenclature. Okay, uh, Really what the word is in Latin, it's either sumus pontifex or it is pontifex maximus. And you won't find those terms hardly ever before the Renaissance. Okay, so the papacy was around for 1,400 years, and that was not the term that they used for it. Okay, um, you could look at Latin epigraphy from the city of Rome. And again, you don't find it before the mid-15th century. And then there's another thing to be said about this, and that is, is that um, the word supreme pontiff doesn't mean what we think it means, uh, because it was used of other bishops in the church besides the Pope at a very early period. I, I won't go into all the details now, but there were other bishops that could be addressed to Supreme Pontiff, uh, and so the term can be ambiguous. And then lastly, you know, uh, obviously the last five decades, there's been a lot of dialoguing going on with, uh, for example, the Orthodox Church. And back in 2007, there was a, a statement that was a joint declaration that was made between the Catholics parties and the uh, Orthodox parties. And I'll just briefly read for you the statement that they came out with. It, it seems that the Orthodox accept the idea that the Bishop of Rome has a certain primacy. It says both sides agree that this canonical taxis was recognized by all in the era of the undivided church. That means the first thousand years of Christianity. Further, they agree that Rome, as the church that presides in love, according to the phrase of St. Ignatius, occupied the first place in the taxis, and that the Bishop of Rome was therefore the protos among the patriarchs. Um, the document goes on to say that um, with regard, so for the Bishop of Rome, he is the protos among the patriarchs, the, what they disagree about is what is the specific function of the bishop of the first see? What, uh, so the future discussion would be on the question of the primacy at the universal level in the church. What does it mean practically speaking? But they do recognize that the bishop of Rome has a, has a certain primacy of honor, so to speak. Now, where am I going with this? Suppose that Benedict did actually separate the vicar of Christ from the bishop of Rome so that Benedict is still vicar of Christ, but when he started out, Francesco was only the bishop of Rome, you could still say that he was the supreme pontiff in the sense that the Orthodox view the bishop of Rome as the supreme pontiff, if you catch what I mean. They don't recognize the pope as having the vicarship of Christ, but they do recognize him as supreme pontiff. That all seems to fit. And yeah, I was... I was uh, chatting with Father Z about this, and I, I was, you know, kind of running running hypotheticals by him, and what I kind of came to was this notion that maybe will help make this clear, is that if the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Birmingham, Alabama, both of whom are metropolitans, um, if they get together in a social situation, who sits at the head of the table, no matter what? That well, obviously the Bishop of Rome would sit at the head of the table, and you could even 
map this onto, you know, take take the Bishop of Rome completely out of it. If, let's say, the um, Cardinal Archbishop, the Metropolitan of Philadelphia, gets together with the Bishop of Dodge City, Kansas, who sits at the head of the table? Well, the Metropolitan of, of Philadelphia. Just, you know, it's just this kind of hierarchy in terms of the size of this of the of the bishopric in question and a bishopric is a physical space so um but we we came down to, that the best analogy was to use Birmingham Alabama because Birmingham the the archbishop of Birmingham Alabama is a metropolitan that's a metropolitan see so you're they're both metropolitans but obviously common sense just tells you that there there is a there's a hierarchy here that everybody just intuitively understands so that's kind of the the analogy that we made yeah and, and i mean because because the vicar of christ was there for 2000 years in the sea of rome and that's where peter died uh and of course we're going to celebrate the great feast of peter and paul this coming monday mm-hmm. um the, the 29th because of that again even if benedict separated the vicar of christ uh from the bishop of rome the bishop of rome would still have all this honor yeah. associated with him he could Theoretically, he could still dress in white if he wanted to change his name. He he could, mm-hmm. to, you know, to whatever. Um, he could even theoretically. I was talking to a canonist uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, you might make an argument that he could even give apostolic blessings if that was something that uh, Papa Benedetto had worked out ahead of time uh, by delegation. It would be a delegation. Like, yeah. 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 Um, yep. Just something I'm wondering here, and I don't want to get on a tangent, but. Uh, something just popped into my head when you were speaking about sort of the East and the West and uh, what could, what, how could the papacy perhaps evolve to into a more ecumenical role or um, anyway, here's where I'm going with this. Pope Benedict dropped the title Patriarch of the West and that was said at the time to be an ecumenical move, which I never understood that reasoning because to me it would seem that would only anger um, yeah. the, the Eastern, you know, I don't know, Dr. Motsi. It, it didn't go over well when he did that. Right, it did, it right. did not go over well with the Easterners. So, yeah, Dr. Matza, what say you? Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, it's a difficult question, and uh, it's sort of a rabbit hole. We maybe necessarily don't need to go down, but uh, uh, but I, you know, I would think that again, if Benedict did separate the Vicar of Christ from the Bishop of Rome, um, maybe there's less of a turf turf war for the future. I mean, uh, it might just give a cooling off period, but again, this is kind of speculation. Well, if if he even did it, and I just want to reiterate the point that um, we are not making any declaration as to whether or not he was successful in this. And, you know, jump in either one of you if, if, I, if I put words in your mouth. But it seems to me that what we're doing and what Dr. Motz's thesis is about is pointing to the, the very distinct possibility that this is what Pope Benedict was attempting to do. But we, we don't know, we don't quite know whether or not he was successful in this. And that's why, of course, we would, we keep reiterating that we would love to have people of authority. Um, first and foremost, wouldn't we love to have a certain former um, 
um, head of the apostolic signature <laughs> weigh in <laughs> on this. That that would be that would be lovely. I mean, no one can say that he's not qualified. Um, so we're not we're not coming down saying this is done that he's separate he's separated. We're just saying he tried, and and then what it just reiterating as we go forward what it ultimately comes back to is whatever he was attempting to do and whatever he may may or may not have been successful in doing it seems very clear to me i'll put words in my own mouth speaking for myself now it seems very obvious and crystal clear to me that we know that he did not resign being the vicar of christ all this other stuff is actually secondary, and it's it's important, but it's secondary. So that's my little preface there. Well, I, I think I can agree. I think I can pretty much agree 100% with what you just said. That's that's sort of where I am. Either way, we're we're sussing out what it what it appears he attempted to do, mm-hmm. and whether he not he actually achieved it. Uh, we'd like some further study on, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but either either way, it seems that he's still pope. Yeah, he's still the vicar of Christ. Yes. So yeah, I mean, uh, Father, it was Monsignor Nicola Bucks. Is that mm-hmm. how you pronounce his name? Books. Books. Mm-hmm. Books. Mm-hmm. He said back in 2018 that uh, we need to study this issue of the resignation. Yes. Uh, in light of the crazy things that are going on in the Vatican today. Um, and uh, as we said on the last show, Father Nicholas Gruner, uh, before he passed, was of the opinion that uh, uh, he says it on live. You can watch the video on Vimeo. Uh, he says that you know, whatever Benedict was trying to do, he wasn't resigning the papacy. Yep. Um, so we do have certain clerics that have, you know, prominent clerics that have come out and said this. So uh, this is my working hypothesis. This is what I've, my research has led me to believe, but I would like to add, as a, a famous Catholic philosopher once said, uh, that I hope that uh, what I have written, uh, there's nothing offensive to divine truth, and that if I have done so, it was through ignorance, and uh, I do not intend to persist in my intention. Mm-hmm. Should anything uh, that I've said be ill-expressed, uh, I leave the whole to the correction of the Holy Roman Church, to the official magisterium. Amen. Amen. So before we move into the uh, weekend in Bavaria, maybe this is a good spot to uh, transition to the idea of uh, or the uh, admixing of the state of necessity slash state of exception with the concept of Ecclesia Suplet. I don't know which one of you yeah. want to take that on. This this is a big concept. Um, and, you know, I have had so many conversations and podcasts and so forth. Did we discuss Ecclesia Suplet on either one of the first two matzo ball podcasts? No. We did not. No. Okay, okay. Okay. Ev, this is one of the most common questions that I actually get in my email box. Everybody's freaking out saying, okay, if if Bergoglio is in fact an anti-pope, doesn't that mean that all of these appointments and all of these consistories and all of this stuff is completely invalid and we're trapped in a corner? There's no way there can be a valid conclave from here forward because of this horrendous mess because you've had seven years of this guy, you know, doing all of these juridical things. 
And I say, guys, no, it's it's not as bad as you think it is. Remember, our Lord is is God, and he's omniscient and, and omnipotent, and he knows men because he created us. And he's a really, really, really good human resources manager. And so all kinds of protections are built in preconceived obviously because he exists outside of time so he he sees all of this as one big now and so he creates everything from from the absolute moment of its conception completely um perfectly constituted and constructed to handle all of these things here is the big term that you all need to know it's called ecclesia suplet and that means the church supplies. What does the church supply? The church supplies jurisdiction in emergency or exceptional situations. And friends, if this isn't an exceptional emergency situation, then there is no such thing. The church herself supplies jurisdiction when things go sideways like they've done now. So what does that mean? For example, um, Bergoglio has signed all kinds of laicization orders, um, all these kinds of, you know, juridical type acts. Bergoglio himself has no authority. But what happens is, is that legally... The church now steps into that void and all of these juridical things that Bergoglio has done isn't Bergoglio's authority, it's the church's because it's an emergency situation. So you look back in history, you look back to, you know, the, the medieval times and the great Western schism and all of this, there's actually, guys, historical precedent of cardinals who were named by an anti-pope during the Great Western Schism, when they resolved all that, cardinals that were named by an anti-pope got grandfathered in under the legal heading of Ecclesia Suplet. Everybody just said, look, the whole thing was sideways. Nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew who the pope was. The church herself supplied jurisdiction to basically, to put it in American parlance, to, to keep the lights on, okay? You, you, gotta, you gotta keep going, you gotta keep the lights on. The church herself supplies. So, isn't that interesting? Um, there is a way forward out of this. Um, there's a couple. First of all, oh, one quick point I need to make before I move on. Ecclesia Suplet does not cover acts that are malicious. Now, this is where it can get kind of tricky because I could make arguments that there are a non-trivial number of these um, um, cardinalatial appointments and men who have been elevated to the episcopacy. I could make arguments that there are numerous of those that are actually malicious that Bergoglio, hating God and hating his holy church, specifically went to sodomite, Freemason, communists, and said, I'm elevating you, and your job is going to be to do this, this, and this. Your job is going to be to protect this sodomite coven, etc., etc., etc. So that's going to be a little bit sticky. But actually, that's that's a relatively small number. Um, there are things like 
his elevation of men to the cardinal C who have absolutely no qualification, expertise, business doing it. Um, it all, it's all affirmative action, you know, just find, find the teeniest, tiniest little um, island in the South Pacific that has a bishop and, you know, give him a red hat. And, you know, a lot of these guys have, have been the first ones to step up and say, I have absolutely no competence to be made a cardinal prince of the church. I mean, if, if they think that Bergoglio's the pope, if Bergoglio says, okay, do this, I, I guess I'll do it. But I, I, a lot of them are pretty upfront about the fact that they just don't have, they don't understand the Roman Curia, they don't have the administrative um, expertise, anything like that. They're, they're little bishops of backwaters who are, and let's let's just call it as it is, who are not white. And that's that's their entire qualification, is that they're not white. And so they get elevated. Is that malicious? Well, no, I don't I, I wouldn't call that malicious. I'd call it dumb, but I wouldn't call it malicious. Here's the other thing that I think a lot of people forget. A lot of people think that, you know, the the whole mode by which papal elections have happened, because it's been a relatively consistent process for many, many, many centuries now, people think that there's absolutely no way out of this. If you'll remember back, um, I posted the very informative history of the situation with Pope Anacletus II and anti-Pope Victor IV and all, and all that whole story, and we'll put that in the show notes. You have to remember that the Pope can name his successor and how that will all come about any way he wants. He's an absolute monarch, so he can do anything he wants. So Pope Honorius II died and left a completely valid document saying, here's what's going to happen. These eight cardinals, and he named them, these eight cardinals are going to be the conclave, and these eight cardinals listed by name are going to be the ones who elect my successor. And that is completely legit. That is totally legit. There's all kinds of things that could be done in this situation. The, the notion that we are 100% stuck with whatever the College of Cardinals is right now, and therefore... There's absolutely no way out of this. There's no way to get a Catholic Pope elected ever again. That simply is not the case. All kinds of things could happen. And, you know, I've, I've made the case, you know, it's, it's admittedly um, something that would definitely require supernatural intervention. But I've made the case to very high-ranking people in, in the church that it is conceivably possible that Pope Benedict could reassert the throne and could entirely liquidate the College of Cardinals and start over. Just making the point that the, the possibilities here are wide open. Don't get caught in this mindset that we are just, the church is just completely trapped and God has been painted into a corner and there's nothing that can be done. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's why we're so optimistic. And, you know, I mean, we've got, we've got the rosary and we've got hope and we have love of the law. 
and we have trust in Our Lady's intercession as we pray the rosary every day. And what these light bulbs that start going off over your head is, man, anything could happen here. The divine providence, he can do whatever he wants. And and legally, from a human standpoint, we can look at this situation and we can say, you know what? There, There's a lot of room to move here. There's a lot of flexibility. And conceivably, it is conceivably possible that that this could be gloriously resolved without the necessity for, for example, something supernatural like St. Peter and Paul appearing in the sky with flaming swords over the city of Rome. And that's not a joke. That's a legit... Um, prophecy vision by a canonized Roman saint. So that you just use that as an example of it doesn't necessarily have to be something like that super hardcore um, supernatural. There is actually a human, multiple human paths forward in this if the vicar of Christ would just assert his power. So there we go. Very well said. So many points in there. And, and if, you, if you need a, a reason to actually fall on the side of hope and and all those great fruits of the mist of the of the rosary that Anne just went through uh if you want a really good reason to fall on the side of hope check out the folks in the public sphere who are falling on the other side and and rapidly tumbling into despair Dis- if oh, you don't despair think, yeah oh it's everything if you don't think if you don't think God has this, if you if you think God lacks the power to resolve the situation, or even a, a lot of other situations that are going on in the world right now, um, He's got it, folks. Just fall on the side of hope and uh, uh, go to mass, pray the rosary, and He's got this. I mean, I chuckle because I see these people saying constantly, "There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do," and I'm like. Do these people not read the news? Have you not been um, alive and conscious on the surface of this planet for the last four months? Do you see events and how absolutely unpredictable, out of control, out of control in the sense of unpredictable? Four four months ago today, did any of us think that the, the church would be under de facto global interdict and half the human race would be under house arrest and now um, everybody in the West would be under, under force of law being required to wear a burqa? Are you kidding me? And you say, well, there's nothing we could do. Can, can you just let the divine providence work for a second? Really? Because you can't foresee exactly what the path forward is for all eternity, that means, well, then there's nothing that can be done. What what hubris, what hubris to say, if I can't, if I can't predict this to the letter, then, then there's just no path forward. Oh my goodness. Just, uh, just the idea of, uh, we couldn't figure out for 2000 years what whatever in the world it could mean that the eternal sacrifice would be taken away and and then now we have the last 3 months yeah exactly dr matza what do you think <laughs> well you you guys are spot on when you say that god is still god <laughs> yeah yes <laughs> and he <laughs> and he can intervene at any time especially with our lady's intercession uh, and so we always have the virtue of hope. We have to pray for an increase in faith, hope, and charity, uh, but especially at this moment, an increase in hope. And then in terms of the power of the laity to do stuff, I just want to give a quick historical example. Um, 
there was a, a gentleman by the name of Eusebius who later became the Bishop of Doraleum. And he was a scholasticus in the service of the Empress. Uh, and this was at the time of the Nestorian heresy. Um, so he, this guy was a, a very educated lay person. And he was the first to speak publicly against the teachings of Nestorius and a guy named Anastasius. And what he did was he posted a written document in public and in the great church, which was Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. So this guy sets up, you know, a, a, a public document here. He says he, he set up uh, a WordPress site. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. In the 400s. Um, I have sworn this statement by the Holy Trinity so that, it, so that it may be made known to the bishops, priests, deacons, readers, and the faithful living in Constantinople, that the heresy of Nestorius, who, by the way, was their bishop at that moment, oh. it, is of the same kind as that of Paul of Samosata, who was condemned 160 years ago by the Orthodox Fathers. Um, uh, the document continued with six sayings attributed to Paul, alongside of which Eusebius placed the words of his bishop, Nestorius, uh, might be interpreted in a, in a similar sense. Now, the obvious purpose of this was to show that Nestorius was as much of a heretic as Paul of Samosota. Uh, for example, Paul had said, Mary did not bear the word. And agreeing with this, Nestorius said, my good man, Mary did not bear the divinity. That's a, there's a heretical statement for you. Very. Uh, so if someone then would, say, would, would dare to say that the son was not the only begotten of the father, born before the ages, and that he was not born of the Virgin Mary, and that he, he is not the one Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. So what this goes to, to show you folks is that it is okay for the laity, when they've researched the subject, to come out and even post a big placard inside the great cathedral saying that your bishop is a, is a flaming heretic. Nice. Mark, show notes. Show notes. We need that one. We need I've that one. <laughs> I, I, I've got it written down. It, it, it seems to me that this, the, the, the parallel here would be uh, there's been, there have been a couple – uh, I don't know if I'd call them letters or, you know, the proclamations by not, not by clerics, although there have been clerics that have signed on to these, but it's predominantly been uh, lay theologians uh, calling out the heresy of Anna Pope Bergoglio. Um, there's been at least two that I can think of off the, off the top of my head. Well, sure. Because, because everybody, everybody who's a cleric or a prelate is scared to death of Bergoglio. This is the problem is that we have this, this cowardice right now. Um, and careerism, et cetera, et cetera. This, you can't say anything. You can't rock the boat. Even the good ones are, are fearful of causing schism. And I say to them, you know, what, what, what the hell do you think this is? I mean, that horse left the barn a long time ago. If you're standing here saying, I can't say anything against this guy because I don't want to cause a schism. I mean, you know, the, the, the horse is gone. The barn is burned to near ash. And you're saying, I can't shut the door. <laughs> it's just, no, we, we need to start, you know, 
um, our tactics need to reflect what the situation on the ground right now is. And I, I also believe that there is a fundamental misunderstanding. Um, I think that a lot of people, uh, clerics and prelates, define schism in terms of um, who controls the real estate portfolio, who controls the bond portfolio, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're not thinking about it in terms of the unity to the principle of unity who is the person of the vicar of christ himself it's a question of who the pope is and so even if the entire planet thinks that this guy over here bergoglio is the pope and even if bergoglio's faction controls a hundred percent of the real estate and a hundred percent of the bond portfolio that doesn't matter that they're the ones who are in schism from us who are in un- who are in unity with the principle of unity the true vicar of christ it is it's not a numbers game it's not a, a power earthly power real estate money etc it's none of that and i think that that's another fundamental misunderstanding one of the most telling things ever to come from the mouth of bergoglio was I may go down in history as the one to schism the church. Yep, yep, exactly. And that's not possible. That's not possible if he's the pope. For a true pope. Yep. That's right. <sighs> All right. What, we, where, where, where are we going? We go off in these tangents. See, Dr. Matza, we have lots of fun. We just... <laughs> <laughs> if, unless anyone has anything else to say on, on that matter, we can maybe move into the uh, weekend in Bavaria, the sudden trip. Uh, the Italian Air Force, the everything that went along with it, and the it, it would be for an indetermined period of time. Not so much. Not not so much. It seems like it was just a long weekend, and I don't want you to get a big head or anything, Doctor Matza. But I've had <coughs> numerous numerous very well known and influential people bring up your name and think that you perhaps could have. Um, influenced the whole the whole weekend situation that just happened. Um, I just want to say straight off the top, I do not believe for a second that Pope Benedict intended to go up there just for the weekend. I think every indication was that he his intention was to go up there and to stay with his brother, um, anticipating that his brother had days to weeks, that you know maybe even through the summer or something like that. Um, and and why wouldn't he want to be in Bavaria in the summer instead of in the center of Rome? You know, so, um, it, it, it just made sense. And that his intention was to stay with his brother through the end of his brother's life and even be involved in his brother's requiem, whether he said the requiem himself or, um, you know, presided. So presided from the throne. Um, so no, I do not believe for one second, not one second, that the intention was just to go up there for the weekend. And if he, if the intention was just to go up there for the weekend, why did they turn the plane around and fly it right back? If it's just for the weekend, you just leave, you just leave that plane up there. Uh, it just none of it made any sense. So no, there were multiple uh, sources that said that uh, he was going to stay there for an indefinite period of time. Uh, and, and really what this whole episode reminds me of uh, as a historian here, medieval historian, uh, let me put on my professor's hat. Um, people, again, and people may not know this, we assume people know this, but when Pope Celestine uh, resigned, 
uh, and Pope Boniface VIII became Pope, um, Boniface VIII wasn't satisfied with that. He persecuted his former, uh, the former Pope. Um, and I could read to you, and we can put this article in the show notes. Uh, many rumors floated around that Boniface had forced him out, that it was not legally possible for a Pope to resign, and that Celestine was still Pope. Uh, Boniface VIII was afraid that Celestine may, might be set up as an anti-Pope. The Catholic Encyclopedia tells us that Peter escaped the custody of Pope Boniface, who was taking him to Rome with him. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> Peter, uh, who was a monk, he used to be the head of an order, he visited his monks on Mount Maia and then managed to evade his pursuers for several months by wandering through woods and mountains. Can you imagine the 70-year-old guy not in the best of health, wandering through the wilderness, uh, trying to escape uh, his successor, so to speak. Um, and, and then, but finally, um, Peter attempted to escape to Greece by sea, but he was driven back to land by a storm where he was captured and brought back to Pope Boniface. And what did, what did, the, what did the nice Pope do? Um, he, he kept him for some time in his own palace, but then he confined him for the rest of his life into a teeny tiny cell in the citadel of Fumone, guarded by soldiers and cared for by two of his religious brothers. And those two religious brothers got sick and died because of how teeny tiny and disease-ridden that little cell was. You can, you, people can Google this and, and see images of it. Um, and even though Peter was insulted by his guards and his caretakers were restricted in what they were allowed to do for him, uh, let's look at some images of, of Benedetto from the weekend and see what he's looking like. I wonder if there's any connection here, right? Um, uh, he returned kindness to every insult and did not complain. He used to say, quote, I desired nothing in the world but a cell, and a cell they have given me, unquote. And then finally, after 10 months of imprisonment, he died at the age of 75 on May 19th, 1296. Many miracles were attributed to him after his death. And of course, Benedict visited him twice, not just once, but he visited twice, Celestine's yeah. mortal remains twice and left his pallium uh, on, on, the, uh, on, on the relic of uh, Pope Celestine. Well, I mean, it's, it was, it's been reported the St. Gallen Mafia has gotten pretty loose-lipped and open about what they've been about and what their activities were. And it's, it's common knowledge now in Rome that Cardinal Martini, who was the Cardinal Archbishop of Milan, who died on August 30th or 31st, 2012, who was the head of the St. Gallen Mafia, that he was the kingmaker in 2005 and that they told, they, that they, the St. Gallen Mafia said to Ratzinger, We'll go ahead and we'll throw it to you in this conclave, but you've got eight years. You've got eight years. And then when we say you go, you go. And so that opens up this whole context into Pope Benedict's visits to the tomb of Celestine and, you know, the leaving of the pallium. I mean, good grief. Now with Dr. Motz's thesis, you know, you're le he, he left the the... Uh, the emblem of not just his authority, but his authority as a metropolitan. That's what the, that's what the pallium is. Um, so, you know, it opens all this up. And I, I would just hasten to remind everybody, 
Boniface VIII wasn't afraid that that Pope Peter Celestine, who had just resigned, was himself going to stage a coup or try to set himself up as an anti-pope. Everybody knew Peter Celestine wanted out of it. He, he wanted nothing to do with it. He had not wanted anything to do with it from the beginning. Um, he was an old man. He was a hermit. All he ever wanted to be was a hermit monk. And they, they basically, because like I said, like we were talking about just a few minutes ago, the way that the, the next pope was, was elected and installed was not the cut and dried way that we've had it for the past several centuries. And so, you know, he just ended up having this dropped in his lap. He didn't want it. He knew he wasn't qualified. And he, he said, okay, I resign. I, he, he first wrote a law that said the Pope can resign. And then he resigned. Boniface VIII wasn't afraid that Peter Celestine was going to try to set himself up as some sort of an anti-pope or competitor or anything. Boniface VIII was defending against Boniface VIII's personal enemies, who Boniface VIII actually rightly feared that they could, his enemy, Boniface VIII's personal enemies, could try to make the argument that Peter Celestine was... Um, was still the Pope, which he wasn't because he validly resigned. That's what Boniface VIII's motivation was, and that's why he needed to find him, he imprisoned him, and, and it was also, I also suspect very strongly that there was just a level of disgust at the whole thing. You know, um, it, it, it was a mess, and popes aren't supposed to resign. We, we can say that. That's definitive. Popes are not supposed to resign. They can, but, you know, that's the reason why it hasn't happened in however many years it's been, eight centuries, seven centuries since the last time one resigned, as if no other pope ever got old and got sick, as if no other pope ever, let's face it, developed dementia or had a debilitating, a debilitating stroke and they hung on after that for a period of time. Of course, of course. In fact, that's probably happened more often than not. The the instances of like Pope John Paul I just dropping dead. Mm, yeah, a, a, a percentage of human beings do drop dead, but a greater percentage of human beings are actually ill and incapacitated for some period of time before they die. And yet, and yet, no one ever resigned. Nobody ever even thought to resign. So... Just putting that all in context, the Boniface VIII thing is really interesting. The more you think about it and you think about this current situation, how it's kind of inverted that, you know, anti-Pope Bergoglio takes every consistory of cardinals and they all genuflect to Pope Benedict. Think how, how utterly opposite that is of the situation with Boniface VIII, who were saying, uh, who knew that he was the valid Pope and that, and that, um, and that Peter Celestine wasn't, and said, I have, to, I have to make absolutely sure that there is no confusion about any of this. Here we have exactly the opposite. We have anti-Pope Bergoglio trotting, trotting out Pope Benedict, taking the cardinals over, kiss, kissing his ring. I mean, good, good, this is, it's, it's so inverted. It's, it's just unbelievable. Kissing his ring and and Benedict imparting the apostolic blessing. Yes, yeah, no. In fact, do you, there's a video at one of the times when they took the cardinals over, 
<laughs> and the two of them are standing there. It's one of those quintessentially bizarre photo, photo ops that happened. And anti-Pope Bergoglio looks, looks at Pope Benedict and says, oh no, you give the blessing. No, 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 no. You give the apostolic blessing. And you're just like, oh my goodness, that boy. Well, how about all those how about all those times when he refused to let people kiss his ring, right? You remember yep. that? Oh, oh yes. And then there's <laughs> that there the internet is now absolutely saturated with animated gifs. You know, the just the really short little animated, they're not videos, but they're just pictures that are animated for like four or five seconds. Those are all over the place. That that was one of the most horrifically awkward. The only thing that was worse than that is when anti-Pope Bergoglio attacked the little Chinese lady on December 30th, this past December 30th. That's, that's the only thing that's more horrifically awkward and kind of telling um, about all of that was the don't kiss my ring, yeah. You know, the whole, uh, everything that we were just talking about uh, regarding Celestine Boniface, that whole situation, and then drawing comparisons or or not really compare, I guess it is comparisons, but it's really the dichotomy of the situation today. Uh, the first thing I think of is the, did, could ben have, did Benedict even have the authority to attempt to do what he did with, uh, let's just take it on the surface of creating the, uh, the, the Pope Emeritus um title and all of everything that apparently goes along with it with wearing the white and you're not smashing my ring and you uh, I'm addressed as his holiness and keeping all of that and creating this new thing um Cardinal Brandmuller says no <laughs> right and, and all of us after reading the Miller dissertation I no I I I thoroughly come down on the position. No, he does not have the authority to do that. It's a, it's an office that's, that's instituted by Christ himself. You cannot, you can, it's not mutable to that degree. You can change how the, how the um, election process works. Yeah, he can do things like that, but you can't change the office in say. You can't change the office, what, what, it, what it ontologically is, no. So, and the the second point would be, he did all this knowing that a true successor, you really don't have the uh, maybe authority isn't the right word, but the the if his successor is the true pope, he can nullify everything that you just did. It's not up to you to decide if if you're retiring, you're retired. It's yeah. over with. Yeah. And and this whole elaborate thing that you've set up, or at least have the appearances of having been set up uh if your successor feels threatened in any way by that and why wouldn't he be yep yep he Good can point. he can he can negate the whole thing find you a black cassock and send you back to bavaria that's right yep and you know uh recently there was the was it the, i think it's the, the catholic monitor blog spot mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um they they posted a quote from bergoglio from a um a few years ago where he refers to people that was it half resign? Did you know yeah. what quote I'm talking? About? Yep. What yep. was that supposed to mean exactly? He, he made a, and it's a snarky. It's a snarky remark. 
Uh, he, it's not said in any sort of a flattering way of people who only half resign. Yeah, we need to we need to find that on Fred Martinez's site. He has a lot of he puts a lot of citations into his posts. I, I often end up when I end up googling looking for a citation, it'll end up coming off of Fred Martinez's site because he just he posts so many. Um, it's it's a good resource. He put something up. Uh, he put something up the other day. Um, St. Grabinian's Bear, who we haven't heard from, I feel like, in a few years. It's been years, yeah. Um, came into into someone else's com box that I'm, I'm not going to remember uh, what site that was right now. But Fred posted the whole quote uh, in a blog post on his site. And what the bear was saying was basically, without getting into all of the legal details and, and without even beginning to make an argument from canon law, I can look plainly at the situation in terms of this uh, historic quote-unquote resignation followed by the second point which is a complete heretic apparently on the throne of saint peter and you know what having one thing happen like a bolt out of the blue is you know can just be a one-off but two things in rapid succession something's off here and and it needs to be investigated which i just i thought it was a very simple way of putting things well, well i don't know if this go ahead go Dr. Ahead. Matza. no you go ahead <laughs> now i was going to say i don't know if we want to go down this rabbit hole but there is something i brought up towards the end of my interview with dr marshall in my second interview with him back on june 10th about the the timing of Benedet, benedetto's resignation and german history I don't know if you want me to talk about that. Yes, please. Uh, so uh, as Pope, right, he could have decided to retire any day out of 365 days of the year. Uh, that was totally up to him. Why did he choose February the 28th to be his last day on the job, so to speak? Uh, not just any date, but February the 28th of the year 2013. Well, it turns out that that's actually an important anniversary in the history of Germany. That's the 80th anniversary of something called the Reichstag Decree. Uh, and what that's all about is that, of course, in Weimar, Germany, in the late 20s and early 30s, uh, it was pretty much, you know, vandalism and violence. And uh, uh, somebody set the, the parliament building on fire. And some people say it was the communists, which probably it was, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and Antifa. But uh, other people say that it was the, not the Nazis. And of course, they were capable of the same thing. Uh, and then they could have blamed it on the, uh, on the, on the communists. But anyway, uh, there's an expression in Russian about one reptile eating another reptile. So the, the two of them were at each other's throats. But um, that happened on February 27th, 1933. So the next day, February 28th, 1933, uh, President Hindenburg basically suspends the Constitution. He suspends law uh, and creates a law, you know, a situation where the law no longer applies. Uh, and in, in, I, I've been doing a steep learning curve the last few weeks on uh, political theory here. Um, and there's a guy named Schmidt, uh, and he lived through this era, and he was a big political theorist, and he refers to this as the state of exception. Mm. Where the, so where the sovereign is allowed, because he's the sovereign, to just basically act above the law or the law is, the law is no longer operative. 
Uh, now, of course, in the case of uh, February 28th, 1933, this actually, this actually led to lawlessness in the sense of iniquity and, and the Nazis, because just a few weeks later, in the middle of March, uh, is when Hitler uh, comes to complete control over Germany as a result of this. Um, so we can speculate as to why Benedict would have chosen of all days as a German to, to choose February 28th to sort of be his last day on the job, so to speak. And what makes this even murkier is the fact that Ganswein, in his um, 2016 speech at the Greg, refers to Benedict's resignation, um, and he uses the word state of exception in, in German. And he gave the talk in Italian, but he breaks from the Italian and uses the German. And he even refers to... Um, if you take it literally, refers to, to the situation as an outlaw papacy. And w what really lifts my eyebrows in all of that is immediately what is what when Antipope Bergoglio ascends and comes to power, what is the first thing that he starts repeating over over and over again as as basically the motif or the motto of his um, anti-papacy? Hagan Leo, which means make a mess, colloquially raise hell, basically be lawless. He, he declared himself from almost the beginning, and I believe it was at World Youth Day in Brazil, if I'm not mistaken. He went there and makes this declaration that this is his motif, raise hell, um, make a mess. And so he basically declared himself to be that man of lawlessness. My goodness, what a spectacular, spectacular segue this is going to be. Because Dr. Matze, is there is there anywhere in the in the epistles that, that talks that <laughs> talks about this? Well, you know, um, Father Z, when he posted uh, his blog, you know, when he posted his post on the on the Maza thesis, mm -hmm. he, he had a he had a preamble in which he said I have a sense that more people than ever are asking questions, pondering what the hell is going on these days. Perhaps we are in the lead up to the tribulation described in scripture. Growing larger and larger on the horizon of my mind is the Pauline allusion to the quote unquote restrainer in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, verse six. We don't know for sure to whom Paul referred, but clearly this figure is the one who hinders the coming of the Antichrist. One day, the restrainer will stop restraining. And then he goes on to say how, you know, looking around the globe with China and domestic lawlessness and the virus and everything, uh, he wonders if, this, if, we're, if, we're, if we're perhaps living through this right now. So uh, I've done a deep dive uh, into this subject. And again, in my last hour of my interview with Dr. Marshall on the second Dr. Marshall interview, I started to go into this, and it was sort of an information overload for folks, I would imagine. But um, I'm happy to report that I'm a couple of chapters into a book on the subject, and we'll let folks know when that's ready. But I can tell you from my initial research, I'm coming to the conclusion that, yes, I think we are in that period described by St. Paul in Second Thessalonians. And I believe I've identified who the restrainer is. Well, can I jump in just for a second? Sure. Let, let's point out that Paul himself, as he was writing that, he didn't know. He didn't know who the, this restrainer was. The Holy Ghost, 
who is operating through Paul and who is the ultimate author of Paul's letters, the Holy Ghost knows exactly who it is. But I don't, I don't believe for a second that St. Paul knew exactly who this, who this human being, who this restrainer was going to be. So, you know, don't, don't think of it that way. The, the ultimate author of all scripture is the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost knows exactly. So, <laughs> well, that's, see, that's the thing. Um, uh, you know, there, some of the church fathers said, well, perhaps he was referring to the Roman empire and, uh, that's why he couldn't say it. He had to use these circumlocutions because um, uh, the restrainer will one day stop restraining, right? Mm -hmm. And so to say that about Rome would be to suggest that one day Rome is going to fall, and that's treasonous. Uh, so he doesn't. Um, so he wouldn't. He, he wouldn't want to put that in one of his letters, at least, at least not explicitly. Uh, now, there's a similar principle at work when he doesn't want to name. Um, Peter being in Rome. Um, for example, uh, he says uh, in Romans, right? You might recall that line where Paul says, I don't want to build on another man's foundation. Mm -hmm. And some, some, peop some people take that to mean that he was referring to, uh, to Peter, having been to Rome and having uh, you know, nurtured the church there in his first visit there, Peter's first visit there. Um, and, and even Peter in 1 Peter says uh, greetings from the church at Babylon, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. using Babylon as a code name for Rome. Uh, but what I, and again, I, this is a separate uh, podcast, but um, what I can begin to tell you is um, Cardinal Ottaviani of blessed memory. Our father uh, and God, we love him. Oh, <laughs> yes. Back in the 1930s gave a very interesting address in which he talks about how the Catholic church, the Roman Catholic church, took over the mission and the mantle of the Roman Empire and cleansed it of whatever was, you know, full of errors and purified it. Um, and so in, in a certain sense, we could say that the, the Catholic Church, or more specifically, the Pope, is this mysterious restraining force because it, has, it had to have been operative at the time of Paul because he uses the present tense, and you know what is restraining him now, uh, so that he may be, so that the Antichrist may re be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. I mean, that was the time of the Emperor Nero, so yeah, the mystery of lawlessness was definitely at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, uh, and the lawless one will be revealed. Now, the reason why this can't be just the Roman Empire is because the Roman Empire fell 1,600 years ago, mm -hmm, and the exactly. Antichrist would have had to come already, right? Right. So, um, so I'm, my working hypothesis right now is that um, it's, uh, it's kind of like what Cardinal Ottaviani was talking about, how during the age of Christendom, uh, it was the, the papacy working together with the uh, temporal power uh, to uh, keep the law, the natural law, the divine law, and what have we found in the, in the tw at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century is the rejection of that. Um, and and uh, I've, I've got some interesting quotes. I don't know if you want me to share yes. them today, but I've got a quote from Cardinal Manning, and I've got a quote from somebody called Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. Yes, please, please, please. 
Okay, so Cardinal Manning, who we've talked about previously on these podcasts, he was he was at Vatican One. He was an ultramontane. He was super crazy about you know the Holy Father and the and it wanted to defend the papacy against its its enemies. As as we talked about last time, it was in the 19th century that the uh, temporal power of the Pope was taken away from him when the the Freemasons and the the guys that wanted to create Italy. Uh, basically you know militarily took the city of rome and central italy away from him uh and of course it's also that whole spirit of revolution from the french revolution and the revolutions of the 19th century so cardinal manning wrote a book well it's actually a series of speeches called the present crisis of the holy see a warning about antichrist and this is what he says he says uh, we have come now nearly to a solution of that which I stated in the beginning, namely how it is that <clears throat> the power which hinders the revelation of the lawless one is not only a person, but a system. And I can interrupt for a second just to say, if you go back and read the original Greek in Second Thessalonians, there's the use of the um, neuter, and then there's the use of the masculine singular. Uh, it, it, so there's a, a what, which is restraining the coming of the Antichrist, and there is a who, who is restraining the coming of the Antichrist. Uh, and now I go back to Cardinal Manning. Not only a system, but a person. In one word, it is Christendom and its head, and therefore in the person of the vicar of Christ. And in that twofold authority with which, by divine providence, he has been invested. Now, this is super fascinating. What is the twofold authority with which the vicar of Christ has been um, invested? Well, first of all, he has the spiritual power, right? There is no one in the church more powerful than the Pope. He has the plenitudine potestas. Um, and we can even get into more of that later if we have time. But... The second thing, which most Catholics are not aware of, is something called the indirect power that the papacy has over the temporal sphere. And I bet you 99.9% .9 of Catholics have no clue about this. And especially Americans, because we've all been taught since we were knee-high to a grasshopper, separation of church and state, separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. So you bring up anything like that, and, and Americans, and everything that's now under the sphere of Americanism, which is pretty much the entire Western world, throws up their hands and starts, you know, screaming and running around and pulling their hair out and rending their garments. <laughs> exactly. And then, for example, when the bishops try to defend us to the extent that they do that at all, uh, from Obama's, uh, you know, uh, abortion and um, contraception mandate, for example, they'll say, well, you know, there's the First Amendment and everybody's got the right to freedom of religion, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I've got news for folks, and they've never heard this for the last 50 years, but I'm bringing it up now. The Catholic Church is not on the same playing field as all the other churches and religions. When, when we say that the state may not impose abortion mandates or contraception mandates or whatever mandates they're going to invent. It's because the Catholic Church was established by Jesus Christ and the state has no power over her in her spiritual mission, in fulfilling her spiritual mission. Rather, it's the other way around. Um, 
the papacy, and again, this is a whole podcast in and of itself, and it's going to be some chapters in my book. If you go down through history, the popes have exercised something called the indirect power over the temporal sphere, so that if there is an issue in society that deals with the salvation of souls, the Roman Catholic Church, in the person of the Vicar of Christ, can interfere, so to speak, quote unquote, for the good of souls. Uh, and so it's quite the opposite. Instead of the, uh, the state telling the church what it can and cannot do, you can only, you'd only have 10 people come to mass at the same time exactly. due, to the, due to the holy virus. No, 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 no. By Jesus Christ, by almighty God, the state can say nothing to us uh, when it comes to the, the power of, of salvation, of salvific power. And in fact, you can take it a step further. And boy, I've had people, I've said this over the years, and you know, a lot of people in like the Tea Party movement and all that kind of stuff, their heads would just explode. The fact of the matter is, is that in a, in a well-ordered society, in a properly ordered society, the state exists to back up the church. That's why the state exists. And the state also exists in order to do the things like maintaining roads and putting in sewer pipe and, you know, fight, fighting wars of defense and so forth. All of that, it does that those things so that, you know, church the church doesn't have to do that. But the state exists first and foremost to back up and support the church. The church is over the state. Oh my goodness, you say that to you say that to a bunch of American, uh, you know, fa fa fairly enough patriots, patriotic Americans, but died in the wool Protestants, and also by now Catholics, because like you said, Doctor Matza, just nope, nobody has any understanding of this anymore. Americanism has just so infected and everything. You say this, their heads will explode. And this was deliberate. In other words, back in the nineteen fifties. Uh, this, this, this was the teaching of the church. And of course, uh, there was a whole book written about this by Michael Davis um, about uh, John Courtney Murray and how the church's position on um, the church and state, uh, sub the subject of the church and the state uh, came up at Vatican II and Dignitatis Humanae and all that. I, I don't want to get into that just now. Well, but and you know, we there, have, to, we have yeah. to say who got the ball rolling on all that. It was JFK. Yeah. JFK running for president in the 1960 election made a very famous speech in which he absolutely assured everyone that Catholicism was secondary to the secular government and that he would be a safe president and that he would not be subject to the Pope. Err, wrong, wrong. Uh <laughs> Yeah, no. So, um, so what I, I'm I'm beginning my preliminary research is bringing me to the point where I am seeing the fact that uh, every all the bad things that we've seen, all the horrible soul destroying, sending to hell things that have been happening in society over the last sixty years, a big component of that is that the church did not assert that spiritual that 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 power she has of protecting, protecting spiritual things in temporal society through the indirect power. In fact, they've, they've, they've gone quite the opposite, but the teaching has not changed. Um, and that has to do with this whole mystery of, of lawlessness. Uh, because the, um, the restrainer for the last 60 years has not been restraining, um, this, we, we were, in the, were in the hellhole that we're in, but I think it's gotten worse over the last seven years and again, this is my 
tentative thesis here. You know, Dr. Marshall asked me, well, if it's true that Benedict deliberately separated the Vicar of Christ from the uh, Bishop of Rome, why would he just allow uh, all this lawlessness to go on that's going on now? You know, Amoris Laetitia, uh, demon goddesses being worshipped in St. Peter's Basilica, and the whole, the whole nine yards, right? These pedophiles being promoted and selling out the Chinese people to the communists, right? The, the, especially the Christians to, to the communists. Um, and my, my preliminary answer to that is to say is that by stepping aside, by vacating the, the Bishop of Rome and separating the Vicar of Christ from Rome, uh, you can argue that, that Ratzinger, that Benedetto is the catacon who now has stepped aside, right? And is no longer restraining. Vocabulary word, catacon, <laughs> catacon. Make sure we all know what that means and yes. how to spell it. So it's uh, K-A-T-E-C-H-O-N. And it's, it's of course, the uh, the Bible was not written in English. <laughs> the Bible Bible was written in Greek. I know, that with all due respect to, to King James uh, and, and and his divine right pretensions, but um, no, the Bible was not written in uh, English. It's written in Greek, and in the Greek, um, Saint Paul in Second Thessalonians chapter two, especially verses six through seven, explains that the only thing that's holding back the Antichrist right now is this restraining force, which he uses in the Greek uh, singular neuter. And then he refers to it again in the Greek singular masculine, uh, that there is a restrainer and, and he is the restraining force that's keeping the antichrist at bay. And what is the antichrist? The lawlessness. Um, so um, one, one can argue that what we're seeing over these last seven years uh, within the church and, and in society now, especially over the last several months, um, is is it's it's the result of the restrainer stepping to the side or vacating or not being in the, literally in the Greek it says he's no longer in the middle he's no longer holding back the tide of um, of Antichrist you so that is additional proof if somebody wants it uh, of the Maza hypothesis that Benedict has stepped down in terms of separating the Vicar of Christ which he holds on to from the Sea of Rome, and is, he's letting the devil have his day, as our Lord said to Judas, um, whatever you got to do, go do it quickly. Mm-hmm. Or, or when he said, you know, this is your, uh, in, in, uh, this is your hour, this is the triumph of darkness, right? right. Um, uh, there's something metaphysical and ontological going on here. Yes. And lest people think that um, uh, I, I, I've been thinking about this too hard here, um, I'd like to share a quote from Joseph Ratzinger speaking about the office of the Pope, Vicar of Christ. Um, And what he says here, and this is from his book, uh, Called to Communion, he says um, that that our Lord at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16, 16, makes Simon the rock, you know, Peter, um, and that's, that's a biblical term from the book of Isaiah, where Abraham is first called rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, what Ratzinger says is, Abraham, the father of faith, is by his faith the rock that holds back chaos, the onrushing primordial flood of destruction, and thus sustains creation. 
Simon, the first to confess Jesus as the Christ and the first witness of the resurrection, now becomes, by virtue of his Abrahamic faith, which is renewed in Christ, the rock that stands against the impure tide of unbelief and its destruction of man. So, um, and then he, he finishes his statement by saying here, only by having such a center can the faith of Christians secure a clear voice in the confusion of ideologies. So uh, it seems like Ratzinger is agreeing here with Cardinal Manning that the restrainer, the catacon, uh, that peg that is holding back the, the floodwaters of, of Satan and, and sin is not only a person, but a system, and not only a system, but a person. It's the vicar, it's Christendom and its head in the person of the vicar of Christ, as Cardinal Manning says. And, you know, just as you were reading that quote and the word chaos came up, I would, re I would hasten to remind everybody what the, um, what the motto of Freemasonry is. Order from chaos. And so that's exactly what Bergoglio has done. He declared it when he said, Hagen Leo, that's my motto, make a mess, chaos, raise hell. And people who talk about Jesuits often say that the, the and you know, the, the people running around calling themselves Jesuits today have nothing to do with St. Ignatius of Loyola or any of that. That, that. that ended, and I'm completely serious, that ended. And now this thing that, that's called the Society of Jesus now is an absolute demonic monstrosity, um, which should be and will be suppressed permanently, um, hopefully in all of our lifetimes. But the the modern Jesuits, what they're always talking about is that the best way to, uh, I don't know, affect change and so forth is to, is to cause chaos. And then out of the chaos will come a new order. <laughs> Where have we heard that term before? Um, so it's Salve et coagula. That's what, what Archbishop Vigano brought up in his letter oh, to President right. Trump. That's right. Solve et coagula. Yep. You know, dissolve and then reconfigure. Yep. Reconstitute. Yep, exactly. And so all of these themes are just constantly coming together from Abraham to Paul in Second Thessalonians to daily current events. I mean, you know, I could open up Canon 2.12 and see what the latest headlines are, and there's probably some new example today of, of that chaos and that lawlessness and what they think they're going to achieve. I mean, they're going to fail, obviously, we know that, but... It's, uh, it's informative to watch it all play out, and it all, back to our favorite new word, consilience, everything just points. Every information data stream, every evidence vector points to exactly the same conclusion. It all ties together. It all meshes. Well, you know, earlier you brought up Cardinal Martini, and I just wanted to compare two quotes because this will really put it between the eyes for people. Um, this is a quote from uh, Francesco. He says, and this is from, uh, this was reported by Crux back in, um, I guess it was this year, um, back in April, was it? Uh, he says, Francesco says, quote, being a disciple means being a free person who is guided by the spirit and never subject to ideologies, to doctrines within Christian life 
doctrines that can be debated. Yes, I, is this microphone on? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, wh wh where is he getting this from? All right, let me give you a quote from uh, Martini, Cardinal Martini, um, who is now the Viceroy of Satan and Hell. No, we, we <laughs> hope he was saved. We hope he was saved at the last minute, but uh, he really was vying for the job. Okay, Cardinal Carlo Maria Martini, quote, What is essential is not the strict observance of a set of rules, but the courage to rediscover one's dignity and freedom. The church should not worry whether its rules are obeyed or not. It should ask whether men are fired with the ideal of the gospel. A church which refers to the gospel is a church which is not obsessed with imposing laws and observances, but which offers an ideal to all, end quote. And let it be uh, said, <laughs> let it be said, guys, let's, I mean, I'm the person who likes to say the things that are kind of awkward and other people don't like to say what all of that crap is, all of this, oh, don't follow the rules, oh, it doesn't matter. These people are all sex perverts and they're trying to, they're trying to justify their own sexual perversion and or they are at war with God himself because deep down they know that their sexual perversion is wrong and God will never ratify it. But it, so much of this stuff, you know, people say, oh, Anne talks about these sodomites all the time and blah, blah, blah. It cannot be overemphasized how much sins against the sixth commandment are at the throbbing burning heart of this entire mess and yeah i i, I really do have um uh, i have a bee in my bonnet about all of that crap and because you go back to luther it's the same thing luther was a priest who was fornicating with a nun and everything that luther said and did ultimately went back to the fact that he was trying to talk himself out of and justify those things that he was doing which he knew deep down could never be justified and it's the it's same song second verse history just keeps repeating and rhyming and rhyming and repeating it it really is i mean it's it's the it's the notion that these uh the, the commandments of god which are designed to for our own benefit and for us to develop our love for God, that those are merely ideals that are unattainable for human beings because of this idea of total depravity, which of course is a heresy. And it is the same thing. And over and over you, you hit the nail on the head. Yep. So um, just watching the clock guys, I can go for another 15. So keep going, keep going, Dr. Motsi, keep going. <laughs> okay here. So, um, so I, I am I am more and more coming to the conclusion here that the reason why we see so many terrible things happening here, so many so many calamitous things, is because the the restrainer is no longer restraining. Uh, he has he has stepped to the side, and this is this is the the triumph of darkness for the for the moment. Of course, the resurrection is coming, uh, and the the cleansing is coming. Uh, the, the son of man is coming. Jesus Christ is coming back and he's going to slay, uh, the antichrist with the breath of his mouth. But in the meantime, uh, there is the, the false prophet who's going to be like the anti John the Baptist, who's going to prepare the way for the antichrist who the church teaches is an actual human being. It's an actual person that is coming down the pike. Uh, so we, we, as father Z says, we, we, we could very well be in that lead up, uh, right now. So can I throw something out for both of you? 
what are what do you say to all the people who after hearing this would say well Anne, mark dr matza all you people who are who are working on this question aren't you aren't you then saying that you're actually trying to thwart the will of god that this is actually all god's will and you guys by not letting my by not just standing back and letting it unfold but instead actually trying to do something about it you guys are trying to thwart the will of god i have an answer but i want you guys to go first <laughs> you can well, go my, first mark go ahead <laughs> my answer would be if i if i have the power to thwart the will, the will of god uh, woe be to mankind. <laughs> <laughs> it's oxy. Good point. It's oxymoronic in 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 the first place. Doctor Matzo, what do you say? Well, you know, so two things. I just mentioned before how our Lord in the Gospel told Judas, you know, whatever you must do, go ahead and do it quickly. By that same token, he was not justifying uh, the mortal sin that uh, Judas was was doing. In fact. I'm sure our Lord prayed for the conversion of Judas. I'm sure our Blessed Lady prayed for the conversion of Judas, but we, he had a free will. And, and if he had um, uh, used his free will properly and you know, not betrayed our Lord or at the last minute you know, re- repented and, of what he had done, um, he would be you know, the patron saint of God's mercy right now. And, and you know, God could still have effectuated our salvation in some way. It didn't have to, as our Lord said, um, it must needs be that the Son of Man is betrayed, and yet woe to him that betrays him. So God does not take away our free will. Um, we can still use our free will for good. You can never justify evil by saying, well, you know, I'm trying to achieve a good end here. I'm trying to achieve the salvation of the world. No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you, know, you, can't, you can't be Judas uh, in order for the greater good, so to speak. Yeah. And there's also something to be said for the search for truth yes. and the the duty to search for truth. It's not just a neutral thing. It, it actually is a duty. And, you know, these gifts that we've been given in terms of a rational intellect and the obligation to, to utilize that in, in the search for truth, there, there really, there, there can't be anything malicious in that. That's right. The truth can never be evil because the truth is our Lord himself. And the only path, the only path through is through the truth. So, I mean, it's going to come out one way or the other. The other point I want to make is just on the micro level. And I don't know if you've experienced this too much yet, Dr. Matza, but I know that Mark and I and other people have, is that you, we, over the years, we get these, these letters and communicates from people saying, Man, I I was on either already had uh, basically in my mind apostatized and decided that the church was with because of Bergoglio that this is all just false, or I was kind of you know I was kind of toying around with that idea. There there are prominent members of Trad Inc who openly confess to this that they are openly flirting and have doubts and um, entertain apostasy. Um, because of Bergoglio and, you know, God sucks and, you know, he's, he's mean and we didn't do anything to deserve this, blah, blah, blah. What we're trying to do is that we're trying to reach just individual souls. Who knows? The divine providence only knows how many people read my site, read Mark, listen to these podcasts, you know, hear you on Taylor Marshall, Dr. Matza. And because they hear the truth, 
and they hear it explained, it, they say, oh, oh, I see what's going on. God, God hasn't betrayed us. Um, the church isn't all a fabrication. The, paper, the papacy isn't all a fabrication. Oh, I see what's going on. I've said it for years. Um, the reason why I do talk about scandalous things and scandals and have for, you know, my entire adult life, starting first in the financial industry and now segueing into this, is... The way you prevent scandal from doing harm is by explaining it, exposing it and explaining it and saying, okay, look guys, here's what's happened. Here's what's going on. You need to understand who these people are, what their character is, the criminality and all of this. Let me explain this to you. And that keeps, that keeps people from being scandalized in both senses the sense of scandal that is being incited to commit sins yourself because other people are committing them and you say well if if he's doing it then i can do it too that's the first type of scandal the other type of scandal is when people do horrible things and that causes you to lose your faith which is almost in a sense worse because if you commit sins but you still have faith you can you know you're one confession away and you can get back on the you can get back on the straight and narrow and get back on the right road if you lose your faith you're not even going to go to confession that's exactly what Bergoglio is doing you had all these people who are just throwing their hands up and saying what the hell if that guy's the pope then this is all bs and it's been bs from the beginning and Jesus doesn't actually love us and Jesus lied and if Jesus lied, then Jesus isn't God. And if Jesus isn't God, then his death on the cross is, is, is basically irrelevant. He's just another guy who got killed by the Romans. And that, that is the, that's what we're trying to stop. And even if we only reach one person, that one person is an infinity. You know, God loves that person infinitely. And so therefore that person is an, inf an infinite, um, an infinitely good and worthwhile person to try to reach and and save from any sort of scandal. So that I think that's why we continue to do this. But yeah, yeah. My mother used to say, uh, "Forewarned is forearmed," mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So uh, Bishop Sheen used to say that, uh, and, and Robert U. Benson, the great convert from um, Anglicanism, who wrote *Lord of the World*, uh, in his book on the mystical body of Christ, he says that we should not in a certain sense be scandalized when we see what's going on because the church is the mystical body of Christ. And so the events of Holy week get repeated. Uh, and so what we're living through right now is that agony in the garden uh, when the soldiers take away Christ and, and the apostles are all confused. You know, Peter whips out his sword and wants to defend, but Jesus says, no, put, 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 put back your sword. Right. And mm -hmm. heals the guy's ear. Um, and, and and Judas betrays him, and Peter denies him three times. This is being reenacted again through the bishops and the and the, the papacy. And so, in a certain sense, it's scandalous to us. But in a certain sense, it shouldn't scandalous. We're forewarned, so therefore we're forearmed. We know that Easter Sunday is coming. But like Bishop Sheen said, you can't have an Easter Sunday without a Good Friday. Yes. So this is the Church's Good Friday. Benedict himself has warned us. He said, pray for me. I don't flee for fear of the wolves. Um, he said that uh, th there's the dictatorship of relativism is coming. Mm -hmm. um, in, his most, in his most recent statements to Seawald, he again talks about how fear can strike us uh, at the coming of Antichrist. 
Uh, and so um, the important thing is to keep our eyes on the prize here, keep our eyes on, on Jesus crucified and risen again. And um, like you said, when, by exposing the truth about this, we're trying to help people's souls, not put people into, it's quite the opposite it's of exactly despair. It's the opposite, yeah. Um, yep. I forget, forget which pope it was who said, um, it's better that scandal should arise than that the truth should be hidden when it comes to the faith and, and the salvation of souls. Um, and I, I can just tell you anecdotally, if you read the comments, uh, for example, for the YouTube videos that Dr. Marshall and myself did, there are so many people who expressed a sense of relief yeah. at, at, at the possibility of what we're speaking about. And one poor lady was like, you, you, get, you really helped my, my blood pressure. That's all I can say. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So I think we just found the title of this podcast, Forewarned is Forearmed. I think that's perfect. So, <laughs> And that's a, a great place to wrap because we're out of time. We didn't get to one of the, uh, the largest examples of lawlessness, which happened just this past week. Uh, and that's with regards to the Catholics in China. We'll have to save that for next time. Okay, so feedback. The email address for the show, if you have any comments, suggestions, is podcast at barnhart.biz. And uh, Dr. Matza and myself do receive anything that is sent there that is intended for us. So um, please email away. Mass is for Anne's benefactors, at least one mass every day, plus one requiem every week for everyone who died in the previous week. Please pray for these priests and all priests. Uh, the priests now who have uh, dared to say mass during the interdict are being uh, targeted by Antipope Borgoglio just, uh, I think, on in Sunday's Angelus, or I'm not sure what it was. It was in the past few days, called them adolescents for wanting to offer the sacraments to the faithful. Now more than ever, the satanic forces are attacking, but your prayers to God for the intention of these priests can help hold back the tide. The Barnhart Podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. If you got some value out of this or previous podcasts and would like to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com slash donate. Even though he's not on this recording, of course, if Super Nerd weren't editing, processing, perfecting, and publishing the recorded audio, you wouldn't now be hearing it. He also keeps Anne's site going against all cyber threats foreign and domestic. And now, Anne, the 1720, or I can read the 17, Matthew 1720 collect. Let's do the collect. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Almighty, Almighty God, sovereign of all things, who didst give the keys of the kingdom to your servant Peter and his validly elected successors, grant, we beseech thee, that your church here on earth be quickly cleansed of the modernist infiltration all immoral clerics, and all other corruption, that the antipope Jorge Maria Borgoglio's invalid election be publicly recognized, completely nullified, before the death of your servant, Pope Benedict XVI, that Borgoglio repent, return to the one holy Catholic faith, and then in, in the fullness of your time, die in a state of grace and achieve the beatific vision. All this we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns in you and the Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. St. John the, the Baptist, happy birthday, and pray for pray us. Pray for us. Pray for us. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Dr. Matza. Thank you, everybody. Uh, we'll, we'll be back. There's a, lot more, there's a lot more to say. We've got a whole other show to do. So, Until next time, I'm Mark. Stay frosty, my friends. And I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless.